I sound like ah. <laughs> Hey everyone and welcome to Two Takes on Film, the only podcast that has successfully been brought back to life. My name is Wyatt and as always I'm joined by my co-host Heather Davenport. Hello. Heather and I are two best of friends who love talking about all things movies. So if that sounds interesting to you, make sure to like and follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. That being said, thanks for joining us today. As we are officially in award season, we're taking the next few weeks to discuss some of the year's biggest awards contenders. Today, we have a quirky sci-fi film that might make you squirm, but that will hopefully pull on your heartstrings. We also have the beautiful biopic of one of America's greatest composers. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on both of these movies, so be sure to reach out to us on Instagram at Two Takes on Film. Without further ado, let's get into our reviews of Four Things and Maestro. Poor Things stars Emma Stone in her second feature with director Yorgos Lanthimos as Bella Baxter, a Frankenstein-esque young woman brought back to life by Dr. Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. After making new friends and setting off to discover the world, we follow Bella on a wild journey of global and self-exploration. If you're familiar with Lanthimos' work, you'll know that terms like weird or bizarre and wild could often be used to describe his work. And the same is true here. I want to get that out of the way. The film is predictably bonkers and and certainly not for everyone. However, I more or less want to leave such descriptors behind for the remainder of the review. While they are accurate, I think that such focus around the oddities of directors like Lanthimos often serve to reduce a work down to one element and ultimately distract from much greater work being done in his films. Like Bella, we are thrust into this deranged but beautifully skewed version of the world through Yorgos's singular perspective. And no matter how chaotic or raw and harsh it can be, this version is such a beautiful look at the world. Quite literally, it is one of the best looking films of the year. It boasts this hugely imaginative take on Earth and different real cities, brought to life by extensive practical sets being paired with this garish and purposely off-kilter CGI. Combined with the chaotic choices and cinematography we've come to expect from collaborator Robbie Ryan, the way he and Lanthimos bounce back and forth between color palettes, unexpected lenses, and camera movements always goes such a long way to you know this unique world building and, and the setting of this specific tone that all of Lanthimos's films have. For example, one section takes place in Lisbon, Portugal, and having been to Lisbon myself recently, I love the fact that the Lisbon represented in the movie simultaneously looks nothing like real life and also somewhat somehow bears a resemblance to the real city. They draw this uncanny, whimsical version of real places that bear genuine resemblance. It, it feels like what a child's memory of a place might be, where it is solid and there are certainly elements 
true to to what what is accurate but also corners of the frame that grow fuzzy and out of focus like they don't quite make sense the more you look at them and like a child's memory of that place might develop over time as bella develops through the story and as her brain develops into more of an adult one so does the clarity of the areas around her become more natural and realistic Willem Dafoe plays Dr. Godwin Baxter, referred to by Bella and others as God. He plays a Dr. Frankenstein-like character who has brought Bella to life via the brain of an infant child and the body of an adult woman. He is grotesque and hilarious, but avoids the somewhat one-note mad scientist character type that he could easily fall into and really does create a disturbing yet heartfelt father type figure for Bella. Rami Youssef plays Max McCandles, an apprentice of God's, who he brings in to kind of help raise Bella. And as he begins to raise her, he develops a deeper connection. While his character is far from perfect as none of the characters are in this film. He certainly is the most endearing and shows some of the most true intentions towards Bella and, and his relationship with her. In a film so steeped in feminist liberation, I think that a character like him, weaker than maybe some of the other brash men around him, could easily become a punching bag, but the film actually takes care of him in a way, and, and Bella comes to appreciate him, again, despite his flaws, for the genuine heart that he does have. And then we have Mark Ruffalo in what is potentially his best performance to date. I love to see him breaking out of the kind of likable everyday dad type role that the MCU has somewhat turned him into, which is funny to say about the Hulk. I mean, he plays the Hulk throughout that. And yet when I think about his character throughout the MCU and what he's essentially been typecast into because of it for the past decade and a half, it really is more just like an everyday dad type guy, even though technically he's a brilliant scientist that turns into a green monster. But that's kind of what he's become known as. And I love to see him breaking far outside that box. He is one of the most annoying characters I've seen in a very long time. However, hilarious and easily has probably the most laugh out loud moments in the film. There's a trope associated often with sci-fi movies throughout film with quite a negative connotation, essentially called the sexy baby trope. And, and what this is, is often in sci-fi films, there are female characters who are presented to the world as adult bodies with very naive or childlike minds, whether that's because they're a robot recently created or they're an alien new to this planet or someone reanimated like Bella. The trope is that these characters are often paired with adult men within their films. And as a essentially a young girl brain, they're going to grow some sort of father-like attachment to this male who is the only adult male they've ever known, human adult male they've ever known at least. Whereas on the opposite side, often this is portrayed as a romantic connection from the male's point of view. This is obviously a pretty gross trope when you look back through the, the history of cinema and, and the amount of times it's come up because from the male perspective, this is only a relationship of manipulation as these young women, or at least as these characters with younger brains don't know any better and can easily be controlled and kind of turn into what would essentially be pets for, for these men to, to kind of own. The movie is obviously, amongst doing many things, directly responding to this trope. And Mark Ruffalo is the character that kind of takes the brunt of this being flipped on its head. He starts out similarly. He sees Bella and sees her innocence and naivete and sees it as something 
useful to him to kind of have as his own plaything, and this serves very well for him for a, a, a small portion of the film. Bella is more than willing to go along with this interesting man who's unlike her father figure or newfound mentor friend and go on all these ventures. And he promises her the world and to see new places and to, to show her everything about life. And that's all she wants is she has this craving to go find out what the world is about. And so, of course, she goes along. But the problem here is that Bella's brain develops incredibly fast, while normal human brains might take 18 years or more to develop into fully matured adults. Bella's on a on a crash course of that, her brain developing at, who knows, 20 times the speed. So very quickly, she starts to understand things about life and outgrow this relationship with Mark Ruffalo's character. What starts out as a very ideal situation for him to have control over quickly becomes out of his control as he's effectively held hostage by his skewed ideas of love towards this person who now wants nothing to do with him. With that comes most of this character's humor of him spiraling out of control and struggling to reckon with the fact that Bella no longer needs him, nor wants him. Lastly, that brings us to Emma Stone, who is the main character, Bella Baxter. There isn't a scene in this film that she isn't the focus of. And similar to Ruffalo, despite being an Oscar nominated and in this case, Oscar winning actress, this is arguably her best work. She is fantastic in the film as this person developing from age zero to, we'll say, 30 right in front of our eyes. And it's really hard to describe what she's doing here that works so well, but it does work so well. Yorgos Lanthimos is, is known for often creating very emotionally stunted characters, characters that you never really get to know the inner turmoils of or the inner workings of because they're so distant and cold, despite the vibrant or very uh, energetic worlds around them that they're placed in, we're always held at arm's length. And yet, despite writing a character that so easily could become that, since at the beginning of the film, they quite literally have no defining characteristics as a literal infant. It's easily his most fleshed out character and, and one of the most brilliantly fleshed out characters throughout the entirety of the film that we've seen in a long time. Heather, if someone was to come up to you and, and ask you about this movie and specifically Emma Stone, we know she's a great actress in general. But specifically, this role has gathered her a lot of praise. She was just nominated for an Oscar. Someone who hasn't seen the movie, if, if they were to ask you, you know, why she's so great, do you have a way to pinpoint it? Do you have something you can put your finger on? Yeah, I think for me, the reason that her performance stands out as it does is because of her ability to truly grow up and journey and develop with Bella Baxter throughout the entirety of the movie. If you think of roles and other films where maybe you're following a character throughout their childhood and their adolescence into adulthood, those different stages of their life are played by different people. So an actor and actress coming into their adolescence has to master that character as an adolescent. Emma Stone is having to do that through every stage of development for Bella Baxter. And looking back at her performance throughout the whole thing. She is so steady. It is so cohesive. Her as an infant matches her as an adult. And that just feels like a really grand task, obviously, that is a team effort with her and Yorgos and just the the script and everything. But I think for her as an actress to be able to develop Bella Baxter and to be so cohesive 
is just so impressive to me. Totally. And I think that it's a testament to to specifically her, but all the cast uh, and the people working on the film that in a, in a movie that has so many different editing and stylistic flares that could prove distracting. And this could easily be a movie that's more just the vibes of the cinematography and the technical aspects on display. The performances and even the characters themselves constantly doing very abnormal things that the performances and the stories of these characters are able to genuinely come through as heartfelt. I mean, it, it can't be understated for however much else is going on in the film, for how funny it is or engaging stylistically it is that the movie has a huge heart and that really shines through in, in a lot of moments in the film. I think one of the marks of a truly great filmmaker is that when they establish their unique way of looking at the world, their unique way of telling stories, and people seem to connect with that in some way, and then they grow in popularity, and maybe their budget grows, maybe their resources grow, the more they lean into that, somehow the better their films become. We see examples of that being the opposite all the time. I'm not casting out this director, but just the first example that comes to mind would be Taika Waititi. Last year, one of the biggest complaints about something like Next Goal Wins or something like Thor Love and Thunder would be that it was too Taika Waititi. He didn't know when to stop and let his own specific way of storytelling that he inarguably created sacrifice better storytelling for the whole. I think that when a filmmaker is able to lean even heavier into that vision and yet come out with even more nuanced characters, even better ways of telling a story, that's really impressive. And I'm so glad that someone like Yorgos is now having these resources and, and funding poured into his movies to do even crazier shots, to do even more unexpected lens choices that work so tremendously well. All of this, obviously, I, I love the film. I loved everything that was going on writing-wise, technically, and we really haven't even dived too deeply into the themes of the film. And I think a lot of that is because I don't really want to sit and respond to the themes of the film too much. I think that it's something that if you're interested in, you should just seek out and go see but I do want to talk about the way the movie presents the themes. Obviously, there are there are major undercurrents of feminism, of sexual liberation. Bella Baxter goes to see everything. However, it cannot be denied that there is an extreme emphasis on sexual exploration here throughout her story. But the way that it always asks these questions, and I think that Yorgos is really good about putting out interesting questions about the way we we view social norms or the way we view our place in society and how we're supposed to act and how we treat each other is it's always told through deeply comedic revelations. It, it's never preachy. It doesn't bash over your head. I heard this comparison a while back. I don't remember from who, and I was thinking about it earlier today, but in a way it does feel quite similar to Barbie in the sense of you have a woman and her immature male counterpart kind of going off to discover a world that is predominantly run by men and struggling as she faces the inequalities that she's met with due to her womanhood. Obviously, it's not you know a perfect comparison, but I think where some people might feel like Barbie tends to take this more simplistic route towards messaging. This always takes a directly comedic route towards Bella's revelations and in, in, in her place in the world and how the world views her, how she feels 
about the world. And while some people might take minor issue with Barbie's more simplistic or more forward approach to these themes, I appreciate the way Poor Things always brings these topics into question and into conversation through its very unique writing and comedy. While that might be not as relatable as something like Barbie, I think that at least for me, it proved a bit more interesting of a conversation around some of these topics. While Poor Things' approach to these topics might prove more unrelatable in some ways, I do think that it provides a very engaging and a very interesting way to kind of have these conversations and explore these themes. And last thing, I do want to mention that this is rated R and it is a very heavy R. This could easily win the award for movie you least would want to watch with your family of 2023, maybe tied with Saltburn. Honestly, probably beats Saltburn. <laughs> I don't know. It, it might be tough. But I, I, I want to save it towards the end because, I mean, if you know me, I don't think it matters too much, but obviously it is a content warning that should be there. And, and you know, it, you should be aware of that going into the film. But also, I do think it is of somewhat benefit to the film. Bella is experiencing a world of highs and lows, of greed, of thoughtfulness, of disgusting elements, of of very beautiful elements. And the film does a job to capture all of that. And I say all of that. And I appreciate the fact that this dives into a heavy R rating. It's not afraid to hold back and really bear all, <laughs> quite literally, to the audience and to what Bella's exploration. I mean, she dives head first into these subjects that we have uh, discussed, and that is all shown. And so, of course, I, I do think it's worth mentioning. Uh, but I think that if it's if it's something you know you can be on board with, and if the wavelength of the film, you know, I I wouldn't, despite the amount of content in here, I I personally wouldn't call the film gratuitous. I don't think that that's the way it's portraying this. So. If you can get on the wavelength that the film is kind of presenting these topics with, despite how raw they might be, I, I really think it's it's worth exploring. Not to mention too much about Saltburn. You mentioned Saltburn. I did just want to reference, this is something that I chatted about with my friend Parker, who I saw Poor Things with. I left Saltburn feeling a very different way than I left Poor Things. Poor Things, you could argue, probably has more content of a sexual nature than even Saltburn does. But I think the overall tone, message, theme of both of the movies is very different. And take that for what it's worth. But I think I, I left Poor Things feeling like what was shown, what was used was not wasted and wasn't yeah, I don't know. I, I think I just left both of those movies feeling very different. So if you have seen Saltburn, maybe that could be helpful. And maybe that I'm sure that would be different for everyone. But yeah, well, I think that you could maybe compare the two in terms of just content level, whatever that may be, whether it be nudity, language, uh, unpleasant elements, whatever. I don't think they're comparable in how they approach it. And it's it's mm -hmm. a topic that often surrounds Saltburn, at least in my thoughts about Saltburn. And one of the things I disliked about it is that that content in there often feels like shock for shock's sake. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in Poor Things, it really never does. I think that there is a little bit of a shock to the system, mm -hmm. but that's never that's never 
disproportionate to how Bella might be shocked by the world around her. Mm -hmm. And all things considered, what Bella gets into, you know that what you see on screen is not even close to what they could dive into. And so you know that the film is, in fact, not holding back per se, but could be more credulous or could be more shocking just for the sake of pulling the audience into an uncomfortable state. And I've always said about Yorgos's films, it's something that makes them hard to watch, but brilliant mm-hmm. is they do just deeply make you uncomfortable. I would say this is the least of his films to do that, yeah. but they're naturalistically uncomfortable. If you are uncomfortable, it's because you're being faced with really awkward truths about the world we live in presented through very uncanny or unique comedic ways. Whereas something like Saltburn, I think that you are often just being shown things for the sake of walking out and telling your friends, oh my gosh, have you heard? I mean, think about the think about the dialogue surrounding mm-hmm. Saltburn. Yes. I don't have any of that dialogue surrounding poor things. I don't totally. hear it online. And I haven't had the need to express that when speaking about poor things to other people, it really hasn't come up. I mean, there might be one or two mentions of like, oh yeah, you know, it's a lot sometimes and it is, but you can tell that there's a different approach to the Mm -hmm. content when the dialogue surrounding it sounds so much different afterwards. Mm -hmm. There are so many wonderful movies that came out this year and it's, it's such a wonderful time to be able to celebrate them. Certainly poor things is one of those movies. And certainly I believe our next movie is one as well. You could argue that Bradley Cooper's sophomore directing effort has not only been years in the making, but rather has been a lifetime in the making. As a young kid, Bradley Cooper developed a love for music and specifically for conducting that eventually landed him in the role of one of the most important conductors of the 20th century, Leonard Bernstein. Maestro is the story of Leonard Bernstein, the American composer and conductor who brought us some of the greatest classical works as well as who gave birth to the music of the Broadway hit West Side Story. We start with Leonard as he's getting his big break as a conductor with the New York Philharmonic. We follow him as he meets Felicia Montalegre Cohn and they fall in love. And then we watch their lives together as Leonard continues to rise in fame, as they welcome kids, and as Felicia falls ill. Maestro is a beautifully crafted look at an incredibly talented man. Bradley Cooper is back working double duty as both star and director of Maestro. As he also co-wrote the film with Josh Singer, it kind of feels like Cooper is doing it all. The story of how he was brought onto the project is actually pretty interesting. This film had initially been slotted to be directed by Martin Scorsese, but he stepped back to be able to work on The Irishman. It then traded hands to Steven Spielberg, who had approached Bradley Cooper to star in the film but who then decided to fully hand over the reins after seeing an early cut of Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born. Bradley Cooper, having been a lifelong fan of music and having had a fascination with conducting since he was a young boy, decided to take on the project. That was back in 2017, 2018, I believe. So since then, Cooper has been working to bring us the story of Leonard Bernstein. I would love your insight, Wyatt, as to how someone like Bradley Cooper could take on something like this, both being the literal star, he's in front of the camera for the majority of the film, but who is also directing it. I think 
as I was watching it, I was just struggling to understand how it's possible (laughs) to do both of those things. Obviously, there are actors who have done it before, but I guess my impression of a director is someone who is sitting behind the camera, who is watching everything happen, who's taking it all in, and who is then making changes and guiding and directing based off of what he or she is seeing. So to be in it, Bradley Cooper can't be watching it happen. So then how does he direct it? <laughs> I I was just, I don't know. I was just struggling to grasp like how that happens and happens well. I mean, if the question is how he's able to do it, how it's quite literally done, I don't know, you know, as much as you, I am just as in awe of it or dumbfounded by it. It's an incredible feat as you are. But I do think that, you know, there's differences in the roles between an actor and director. Obviously, even if you are both the name and the star of the film, actors have a responsibility to bring truth to their character, you know, whether that character is is real or fictional. It's written for them and they are tasked with embodying that and, and bringing whatever that character holds true inside themselves convincingly to the screen. And a director's job is to see that truth and figure out what place it has in the larger truth of the film and and the larger story or, or what the film is trying to do or say. And so I think that you can see both at once. I think that's very difficult because sometimes, you know, what, why a director is there, or at least a good actor's director is to allow their actors space to not have to worry about the larger context, to just seek out this one person and to bring to that whatever naturally comes out, to trust their vision as an actor for this character that's been written on page for them and bring that out and and leave it to the director to sort out the mess of that person. You know, the characters, mostly human, uh, but any characters are like humans. They're, They're messy and complicated and they're not always just this very streamlined vision and it's the director's job to to find that place so to be able to see both at once is very impressive but i do think i mean in terms of being there being behind the camera a director's job is a lot more than just observation surely you can sit behind the camera and you can give notes to what is being shown you can see the actor's performances from maybe a third party perspective rather than being in the scene with them and give notes to how they're relating to one another or how they're hitting certain lines and all that sort of stuff. So that is valuable to a director, but I don't think it's necessary, especially mm-hmm. if you trust the people you, you're working with. If you understand that your DP or your different operators or everyone on set is, you know, a, a director's job ultimately is to make sure that everyone is working together towards the same vision and, and yeah. to make sure everyone understands that. And if you're doing your job well, you don't need to be peering over their shoulder the whole time. That mm-hmm. gives you the freedom to step in front of the camera. Would that be scary because the directors are often controlling and they want to be peering over the shoulder and, you know, saying, oh, no, a little to the left or, oh, no, do this, do that. Yes, of course. And there's some directors that simply would never give that up. Often directors are rarely talented enough to get behind the camera or to get in front of the camera anyway. So Mm -hmm. that's unique enough as it is. But I would say that being able to let the crew flow, step in front of the camera and engage as an actor in the scene and, and trust the process. Obviously they're taking breaks, they're rewatching, they're, mm-hmm. they're going over, you know, step by step, but even just in the midst of the scene to be able to allow, to trust your crew to, to bring forth the vision that you've communicated to them is a sign of very strong direction mm-hmm. rather than a lack of control or, or anything else. So again, I don't know if that gives 
insight as to how I, I, sure. I don't know. I've never done it myself and I, I can't even imagine how difficult it would be. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, they are very different roles and, and I can understand at least conceptually how one could separate them and, and step into one. I mean, it must be a very humbling experience to be given this character and, and told that it's going to be your job to bring them to life and then also be trusted with the ability to see the greater story that their life is being mm-hmm. told told with in this specific story or this context and kind of given the reins and for someone especially someone like steven spielberg to yeah to essentially have that kind of trust in you and your storytelling yeah. ability so yeah yeah i mean it, it's a feat it's a miraculous feat for sure yeah Well, beyond Cooper's strong directing, his performance as Leonard Bernstein is undeniable. Watching Maestro felt like I was watching Leonard, or Lenny as he's affectionately called, and that Cooper had all but disappeared in the best way possible. Whether that was due to physical changes that Cooper experienced via makeup and prosthetics, or it was the change of the cadence of his voice. It was clear that he worked really diligently to study Lenny's mannerisms and to be able to provide the most accurate depiction of him. The scene that I feel like Cooper shines in most is really anytime he's conducting, but especially his final piece of the movie. I felt like that was his most powerful. That was when I felt like Cooper was most kind of in the zone and really got to shine. It is a powerful six plus minute long Mahler piece that Cooper had spent six years perfecting. The whole thing was shot live and just the emotion, the physicality, the accuracy that is on display is just a true testament to Bradley Cooper's ability as a great actor. And just to to see the work that went into studying him, to perfecting it is just really impressive. Our leading lady is Carrie Mulligan, who plays Leonard's wife, actress Felicia Montalegre Cohn. Felicia comes into Leonard's life as he is rocketing to fame, but she really sees him for who he truly is, his flaws and all, and she chooses to love him and support him in spite of all that she knows about him. As they get married, have kids, and continue to live their life together, it seems as though Felicia gives up a lot of herself and her own passions in favor of the fame that Leonard is experiencing. Mulligan was the star of this movie for me, and at many times I feel like even outshined Bradley Cooper in her performance. She is just as dedicated to mimicking or recreating the sound of Felicia as Cooper is to Leonard, but her role isn't distracted by anything. She is fully committed to uh, her love for Leonard and displaying that through her performance. But as she begins to resent him and the life that he's choosing to live more publicly, we do see her affection for him change, which I feel like is really carefully navigated by Carrie Mulligan. The two together often feel more like best friends than lovers, and I can't help but wonder if that was accurate to their real lives. A standout scene for me with Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan is this fight that takes place on Thanksgiving Day. It is raw. It is the culmination of years of hiding and resentment, but it is also a fight that is weirdly rooted in their love and commitment to one another. Watching it felt 
like it was a scene that really rivaled some of the other emotional relationship blowups that we've seen in movies in recent years and was just an absolute standout for me. Visually, this film is gorgeous. Cooper partners once again with cinematographer Matthew Libatique, who also worked on Don't Worry Darling, The Whale, and of course, A Star is Born. Libatique has a beautiful way of visually taking us through the different time periods that are on display. Uh, I think this movie spans... I don't know, 30, 40 years. So it is taking us through this journey of their lives together, but always feels really cohesive. For me, the changes from black and white to color or the changes in aspect ratio didn't necessarily add anything for me, uh, but also I don't feel like it necessarily took anything away. I think it was a creative choice that I know some people feel is maybe overreaching or could be a bit pretentious, but ultimately I think just gives us a visual treat to snack on throughout the course of the entire film. The score is largely built from Bernstein's own pieces, which were hand-selected by Bradley Cooper. And to be honest, coming into this film, I could not have told you who Leonard Bernstein was, which is a shame given the fact that he has been just such an influential creator of American classical music, and of course, Broadway greats like West Side Story. But it was neat to be able to experience his work in that way, not just the pieces that Cooper performs as Bernstein, but also through just hearing his music supporting the story about his own life. What I will say is that this is a biopic about his life and his relationship with his wife and really centers very little in the grand scheme of things on the incredible career of Leonard Bernstein. Through a simple read of his Wikipedia page, I learned far more about his work, his influence, and even his acts outside of music then Maestro shed light on. Don't get me wrong, I liked the relationship between him and Felicia. I liked seeing the ways that things fell apart. I liked the emotion that came from that. But I do wish that there was more. This felt like a sampler, and I wanted something a bit more substantial. Whether that was fully leaning into his life outside of music, exploring his sexuality, his philanthropic work, or even his history as a child. Or whether that was glazing over his private life and just focusing on the incredible impact and influence that he had in the music world, I just wanted a little more depth and focus to the story. Wyatt, do you feel like this is a greater issue with like the modern biopic? And do you feel that there are any biopics as of late that have done this really well? Yeah, I think that I disagree in, in some ways towards the notion that the film is scattered or unfocused. I think that the film is primarily focused towards his relationships, who he, uh, who he was as a husband, a father, and less about who he was as a composer or an artist or his impact or his works. And I enjoy that to a degree. I like the focus on the relationships. I think that there is somewhat of a trend moving now back towards character studies that are less about the works of the person, the Wikipedia page, especially in the information age we we live in mm -hmm. where everyone's life's works, A, B, C, 
bullet point, bullet point, bullet point is available to us Mm -hmm. within seconds. I enjoy movies that take those characters, even if they're not the most known person in the world, like like Bernstein, and choose to tell a story about who they were as a a human or who Mm -hmm. they were as an aspect of their life that you're not going to read in a Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. Even and I think that that audiences have been trained to see biopics because we had such an onslaught of even very like like awardsy Oscar nominated biopics throughout the 2010s Mm -hmm. and have for a long time that were just so they call them you know birth to deathers Mm. of just kind of just bullet pointing this person you know the the 20 most important things that happened to them or that they did Mm -hmm. and that's it and you get very very little idea of who they were as a person but an understanding of how the world saw them I think that this movie and even other movies recently or a movie this year like Oppenheimer some of the complaints about that movie is that it wasn't really about the bomb the thing that the the person is most known for it was about mm-hmm. the man mm-hmm. who built it so much that there were aspects of the story we all know we all learned in history class we've all seen a million versions of represented in media totally left out of that story i'm talking about actual implementation of the weapon and and all that sort of stuff because that's not what the story was focused on Mm -hmm. and i find that much more psychologically compelling as storytelling for both that movie and for this for maestro some people may not just i think it depends on what you want to get out of your stories but i think that the the film maestro does a good job at focusing on one element which is who he was as a as a husband mostly but as a father as well and his relationships I think that it maybe just doesn't give us enough in terms of the length of the film. It's two hours and nine minutes, I believe. And I probably could have used the film to be three hours. Uh, and, and I don't always say that about movies that I could have used it to be longer. But I think this is the case that, I mean, it's 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 put together well enough. And it, it certainly didn't feel like it was overstaying its welcome by the mm-hmm. time it by the time it ended, I could have used even more exploration. I think of a pretty impactful scene between Bernstein and I believe his oldest daughter or one of his daughters, uh, a conversation they have in in uh, in the yard that was clearly very important and and emotionally weighty and I felt that but I I also simultaneously felt like we could have had even more weight behind this I could have seen even more of a development of their relationship when she was maybe a younger girl and what their father daughter relationship looked like that wouldn't make a conversation like this so difficult or mm-hmm. important or weighty mm-hmm. so yeah i i do think i think that i understand what you're saying where maybe there's a grander story of his impact left out especially for an audience that most people especially our age probably don't know a lot of mm-hmm. like bernstein's work and and they might want that to be explored and, and please go explore it you know pull up his wikipedia page seek out his music or or his his plays but it as far as the film goes and the story it's telling i think that it's it's focused enough for me but i could have used maybe even a little bit more mm-hmm. of it just in quantity the last thing that i'll mention is that there was some controversy surrounding bradley cooper being the one to play leonard as he isn't jewish cooper worked with special effects artist kazu hiro to create a prosthetic nose that mirrored bernstein's while also finding this really unique balance of not losing the look of bradley cooper either as early shots of the film were coming out there was some pushback from this and people feeling that if the character couldn't be authentically played without use of prosthetics then they needed to find someone else to play 
Leonard Bernstein, but Bernstein's children were in support of Bradley Cooper being in this role, being in this position, using this prosthetic nose, and were actually really involved in the process of making Maestro, were really connected with Bradley Cooper, and ultimately offered their support um, to him in this role. So as I mentioned earlier, I really liked the transformation that Bradley Cooper went through. I think it was important to be able to feel him as the character, allowed me to believe him as the character. Could that have happened without that? Probably. But also just offering this level of authenticity to honor Leonard Bernstein, I think is really special as well. With stunning performances, great visuals, and a true monument of a musical genius as the film's content, I think Maestro has a lot to offer. It is streaming on Netflix, so be sure to check it out before this year's Oscars. All right, everyone, well, those were our reviews of Poor Things and Maestro. Once again, please let us know your thoughts. We love to hear them. Stay tuned for more Oscar movie coverage to come in the near future. Until then, watch as many movies as you can, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. That's what it was. You yeah. didn't say that line last year. in the last yeah. episode. So when I was editing it at the end, I was like, I was like, what? It just on? feels yeah. wrong. But also, oh, it was the buy. The buy was like, that feels like it's missing something. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs>